how do you define a data engineer? And I guess, like, how is that different than a, a software engineer for those that are maybe less intimately familiar with this world? We define a data engineer as, as somebody who manages the, um, you know, the, the data lifecycle as it pertains to, you know, the, the roles of data engineer, right? Well, um, you know, embracing the undercurrents of security, orchestration, data management, architecture, software engineering, and so forth. Do you think that data engineers are not always given you know, as much credit or respect within an organization as maybe other forms of engineering? I think that's definitely been historically the case for sure. But I, I, I would actually extend that to data in general. Data is typically misunderstood. Yeah, do you think the data lake, as you know, historically we know it, is just going to go away? Hey folks, it's Sean from Software Huddle, and boy do I have a great one today because Joe Reese is on the show. Joe is the co-author of The Fundamentals of Data Engineering, probably the best and most comprehensive book on data engineering you could think to read. One of the things I really liked about the book is that it's really focused on fundamentals, which, you know, hence the name. But it's not about specific technologies, but more the core principles of that are widely applicable to any data stack. And beyond the book, we talk about the culture of data engineering, relationship with data science, the downside of chasing bleeding edge technology, and approaches to data modeling. Joe's got lots to say, lots of opinions, and is super knowledgeable. So even if data engineering, data science isn't your thing, I think you're still going to really enjoy listening to the interview. All right, last thing before I get you over to the show, Alex and I will be in Miami in April at the Shift Developer Conference speaking and also doing interviews. If you're in the area, you should come on by, see some great talks, say hi to us. You can learn more about the conference at shift.infobip.com slash US. And as always, feel free to reach out to Alex or myself on LinkedIn or X if you want to connect or share feedback about the show. All right, let's head over to my interview with Joe Reese. Joe, welcome to Software Huddle. Hey, what's going on? <laughs> not too much. Uh, as I was mentioning, I'm uh, here recording, not my usual spot today. I'm recording from uh, my day job's office, so don't have my new normal backdrop. Got this uh, rather boring uh, backdrop, but hopefully the the, the sound... The office uh, crowd uh, doesn't come in until much later in the day, and it doesn't get too loud in here. Okay, perfect. Sounds good for now. Yeah. Well, anyway, I'm excited to talk to you. Uh, you know, I've listened to a lot of hours of your podcast. I know you're uh, you're not going to hold back. You're going to bring the heat, uh, which I like. <laughs> so <laughs> I thought to start off, um, we could talk a bit about your journey to where you are today. I know you studied math um, in university. And how did you kind of go from there to machine learning, data science, data engineering to where you are now? I mean, back then, I would say it's a pretty natural progression career-wise. Back when I was studying math, there weren't a lot of let's see, career options available. You know, data wasn't a cool thing either. So, um, yeah, I, 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 my, I think that the path, this is in the late 90s, early 2000s, your path of a math degree was teach, uh, go work for the government, become an actuary. Uh, you could probably go be a bartender. Um, I was actually a DJ <laughs> at clubs, so that's how I made my money. Um, yeah, then I got a job actually as an analyst, but more doing data science type work. So, you know, a lot of predictive work, a lot of, um, optimization type work as well. So that was, I guess, a good application of my degree, but fast forward to, you know, the 2010s and that's when machine learning, I think was taking off. I think I started getting interested for real in it back in 2009. I think it was, it was like, I got a we transition into this because that's when GPUs are starting to become available um, to the public for machine learning purposes. And I think the cloud was also starting to facilitate, um, you know, machine learning. You got to remember computers back then were pretty, pretty crappy. So it's like you needed all the horsepower you could get. So, yeah. 
I think, I think we were even playing and using like an Xbox back then for uh, machine learning purposes. But yeah, anyway, that's how I got into it. But yeah, I haven't looked back since. And that was a self-taught journey at that point in terms of learning. Yeah, self-taught. I mean, there weren't a lot of resources out there at the time. I mean, I think popular packages might have been like Weka or something like that back in the, back in the day. If you remember that one? Yeah. Um, but it was just, you know, that kind of got me into data engineering because I was working at a machine learning startup. We were doing automated machine learning. This was in the early 2010s. And, you know, back then there wasn't a playbook for, I guess, whatever you call ML ops now, right? You'd have to kind of roll your own model hosting and all this stuff. And I came up with the automated feature engineering system way back in the day. And it wasn't really a rule book for any of that. So you just kind of had to make it up as you went along. But got to do what you got to do. Right. Yeah, so I, I read your book recently, The Fundamentals of Data Engineering. Condolences and, and thank you. Uh, so. <laughs> well, I had a couple of observations. So, you know, first thing, I've interviewed, you know, a number of people who've written books, and I'm not going to name names or anything, but let's just say not all business books are created equal. There's a large number of business books that are essentially like a 1,500-word blog post stretched into 140 pages of filler. And I would say your book is absolutely not this. It's, it's basically a pretty meaty textbook. And I was actually reading it a few weeks ago on a Saturday night after my wife and I got the kids down and my wife came into the living room and she said, saw me reading a textbook on the, uh, on the couch. And she's like, are you reading a textbook? Are you some kind of sociopath? And the other thing, there's, I think a lot of like tactic based books in our, you know, in the space of data engineering, you know, Spark for data engineers, Hadoop or Databricks for dummies or something like that. But your book is essentially for the most part, technology agnostic. So why was it, or why did you think it was important to sort of focus on fundamentals and start there? I mean, there really wasn't any coverage of the fundamentals of data engineering back when Matt Housley and I uh, decided to write the book. As you point out, there, there's no shortage of blog posts. There's no shortage of uh, books really on, you know, data engineering on, you know, technology X, Y, or Z, or, you know, various cloud platforms. And those are great books, but I but up to that point, I don't think anyone had really taken the time to describe engi- data engineering from first principles, you know. And so that that was actually the the hard part of this book was if you kind of peel back the field, like what is it exactly? And so that was the task. But interestingly enough, uh, you know, our, our acquisitions editor at O'Reilly, she told us not to do this book because uh, she said it was going to be really hard for two first-time authors to try and define an entire field from, you know, the ground up. But I don't know, we told her we're kind of, Kind of dumb, kind of crazy. So, why not? Then she eventually came around to I think our way of, of the world, and you know. But I, I can't say it was easy. You know, when you, when you try and define something from first principles, and you don't want to have the crutch of a technology, it's I would say it's it's not easy. Yeah, I mean, you have to kind of take a step back each time that you're describing sort of these things. It's like if you're talking, if you you know think about a particular technology, it's like, well, what does that technology actually enable people to do? And then how do you sort of define that as a larger thing and where it fits into this, you know, world that we call data engineering? Exactly. And, and the, the crux is definitely understanding what's not going to change as quickly in a field that changes very quickly. Right. So and we distilled that down to a few things. It's like, you know, um, and I don't see any situation where you're not going to obtain data from some sort of a source system. You know, you're not there's no situation where you're probably not going to have some storage mechanism for that data, you know, ingestion patterns and queries, transformation, modeling, and then serving it. I think all those are fairly, fairly, um, you know, rugged. <laughs> They'll be around for a bit. Uh, then you know, all the undercurrents, I think, are what supports it all. So, but, you know, it's an interesting thought experiment. I don't know that I would change anything on it. 
So probably add a couple of things, but that's about it. But, yeah. We can come up with a new version in uh, in a few years. Matt and I are thinking already about what, what we'd add in the new version. I think you know, orchestration probably is going to be a standalone chapter, but I'm not going to give away too much yet because I haven't formulated it. But, you know, you start nitpicking things about your book and after it's written. And uh, the idea was, you know, for it to be relevant five, you know, at least five years from now. And I think it will be. Yeah. I mean, if you look at like the sort of classic first principles books, you know, from like Knuth's books, for example, on the fundamentals or the art of programming, you know, like those you know, he made up a programming language to describe these things. Uh, that's like, so that you're not even locked into the technology of like, uh, the, the programming language and, and sort of the, you know, languages fall in and out of popularity. He basically, well, I'm not even gonna, I'm just gonna ignore that and essentially make up my own language to kind of describe these different things. And those started in, I don't know, like, you know, 40 years ago and they're still as fundamental as they are today. So I think, that the sort of first principles approach doesn't does if you have that it you create these kind of classic works that people can go back to 10 20 years down the road oh for sure yeah it's all new books great then also the um uh martin clapman's designing data intensive applications they thought that, that was uh you know definitely the de facto data engineering book at the time even though it was actually written for software engineers and not data people which I thought was interesting but, you know, that was the one that everyone gravitated towards. And it's, it's one of the greatest books of all time, I think. Uh, at the same time, you know, the, if you look at how data engineering changed from the time Martin published that book in, what, 2016, 2017 to today, or when we started writing our book in 2020, I think a lot changed, right? The tools became a lot more abstract. Your, your need to know a lot of the underlying gory details of the outlines in the book, I would argue most data engineers at some point should be familiar with it, but that shouldn't, it, you don't need to operate at that level on your, in your day-to-day job typically anymore, right? Like things have just gotten a lot simpler. Um, so that allows you to kind of step back. I would say like, you know, our book is a prequel to his book. Um, you know, I'm currently reviewing as the next version of his book and it's, it's, it's good. We'll come along. Okay. Yeah. So in your book, you mentioned, at least at the time of writing, there was 91,000 unique definitions of a data engineer. So how do you define a data engineer? And I guess, like, how is that different than a, a software engineer for those that are maybe less intimately familiar with this world? Yeah, yeah. The, the, the number came from the uh, uh, amount of, uh, it did a, just what is a data engineer? It was the, uh, and I did a unique query search in Google on that, and that came up with 91,000 results. And so that was interesting. Um, but we define a data engineer as, as somebody who manages the, um, you know, the, the data life cycle as it pertains to, you know, the, the roles of data engineer, right? Well, um, you know, embracing the undercurrents of security, orchestration, data management, architecture, software engineering, and so forth. Um, and, you know, the TLDR is definitely a data engineer uh, gets data from somewhere, does something useful to it, then serves it for downstream stakeholders like, you know, analysts and uh, machine learning and AI use cases and maybe reverse ETL and similar use cases. So so there's sort of the, uh, the bridge between, you know, software engineers and, uh, you know, kind of downstream data use cases, so to speak. So, yeah. So then, you know, if you think about software engineering is potentially building, I don't know, the an application that's going to be used by some end user in a B two B B two C sense. The sort of end user, the data engineer, is the the analyst, the data science, the you know AI engineer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think that's as it stands today. I mean, there's definitely an argument that the these roles will be kind of melding together at some point and perhaps evolving, especially as you know data use cases traditionally, which are kind of maybe more internal facing, you know, become more external facing and application based. And then at that point, I think there's more of a feedback loop between data and the, um, 
know, whatever software engineers are doing, right? And so they think that's, that's sort of the next progression, which we talked about in the last chapter of the book. You know, we call it the, the, we'll get the quote, live data stack, uh, kind of a tongue-in-cheek um, words for the modern data stack. But the, the notion really is, is that feedback loops become tighter, streaming becomes a first-class citizen, and then, um, you know, event-based architectures means that, uh, you know, there's, there's really no definitive line between applications and, quote, data use cases at the end of the day. It's all sort of the same thing. Uh, but that's, we'll see if that happens. I think it will. But Do you think that data engineers are not always given, you know, as much credit or respect within an organization as maybe other forms of engineering? I think that's definitely been historically the case for sure. But I, I, I would actually extend that to data in general. Data is typically misunderstood, um, probably misapplied and underutilized. Um, I mean, I think... Part of that is there's there's a sense of FOMO around data where if I'm not doing data, then you know, I'm obviously doing something wrong. So you'll hire a bunch of data people, but have really no idea how to properly utilize them. And so that's uh, whereas the software engineers, for example, right? Like an application is is a very, um, uh, I guess the impact of what a software engineer does is very um, immediate, right? I, I make a feature and the feature's out there. I make tweaks to the feature and those tweaks are you know, uh, available for use and so forth. So whereas data is a bit more silent in some ways, right? It, it's sort of, um, it's like air. It's everywhere, but you don't see it. Uh, but it impacts a lot of things and it powers a lot of things. But I would say it's, a lot of it's just due to the immaturity of the data field. I always like to say that data feels like it's about, you know, 5, 10, 15 years behind um, software. So... Yeah, we, where would you say, you know, so as a two, if you have software engineering, maybe that's sort of the more, the, the most like uh, developed uh, discipline in the engineering space. And then you have data engineering. And then I guess like now you have sort of AI, ML engineering. Mm-hmm. Like where would yeah. you put data engineering between those uh, on the like spectrum of maturity? I think you, you kind of nailed it really. Like the data engineering is sort of in the middle, um, you know, ML engineering because it's just newer. I mean, that's, uh, going to be uh, the least mature. Um, but ultimately, I mean, we do have a guidebook, though, right? And a good rubric, and that's just uh, paying attention to what software engineers have already done for a while. And I think borrowing what works and tweaking it for, you know, our specific use cases. But it's, um, I mean, software's done a lot of great things. You know, they've done a lot of things correctly. I think, you know, they've uh, kind of paved the way for for the fields. If, if, it's funny, because if you look at, like, there's data ops, there's ML ops, and these are all just borrowing practices from... Uh, you know, software engineering. And so, yeah, I mean, it's like the, it's a sign of maturity of any discipline where you get more specialization. Like if you look at uh, being a medical doctor from, you know, hundred plus years ago, one doctor is doing, delivering a baby, you know, uh, giving, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, pulling a splinter and performing surgery. But now you have people who just specialize in, you know, what surgery of one specific, you know, organ or one specific type and they're a specialist in that like thing and i think we're getting we're not quite maybe quite there um in engineering but there's more and more specialization because the scale of the systems are much more complicated bigger it's hard for anybody one person to essentially be able to be an expert in everything and keep all that stuff in their head i mean yeah software engineering it definitely has progressed i think it, it, yeah, medical analogy is a really interesting one right because you're the uh, used to be kind of the general doctor that would go deliver babies in a barn and um, you know, uh, apply the leeches or yeah, or leaching and bloodletting and all that stuff back in the day. And that's, and he, he realizes things, things, things mature and I, you know, there's a lot to borrow. I mean, but when I say, so, you know, that it feels like the data fields about five, 10, 15 years behind software that that's not, 
it's not always going to be a linear um, kind of look back, if you know what I mean. Like there's there's definitely things to borrow. So hopefully that means that the uh, the data field can catch up a lot more quickly, right? Because you already have good rubric to go off of. I mean, the stuff does work. And like I say, the more that, you know, these, these fields kind of blend together with the use cases of, you know, data powering more applications and so forth and AI models becoming more front and center, you know, I think you're going to see a pretty interesting intersection over the next few years that is going to change stuff. And but it's already changing workflows too of software engineers. I mean, if you look at what's going on, a lot of people are using Copilot now and things like that to generate code. And you know, that's a, that wasn't a thing a few years ago. Now it's kind of the default. <laughs> so. Yeah. And I would say the other thing too that helps like uh, uh, mature an area as well as bring new talent where they might have gone to more traditional software engineering is like, you know, how important or hot, you know, what's the hotness of it? And like data is really the love language of AI. And of course, there's a lot of stuff going on in the AI world right now. So people are trying to figure out like, you know, how do I fit into here? How do I kind of, uh, I want to go where, you know, to the companies that are uh, at the forefront of technology, work with the best people. So you're going to, I think, see a natural like gravitation towards people seeking more of a, a, a data role than probably before as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting seeing, you know, the role is definitely, you know, the popularity of data has changed. Like I said, when I got into it, it was like the, probably the least cool job you could think of. I mean, you know, at that time, everyone's getting their MBA, right? I wanted to be a quant. I wanted to go to finance. That was Maybe the path I was in, I was, you know, um, so I'm going to be an actuary because that's super exciting too. Um, joking. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's, it got popular, right? Data science became the, the cool job and everyone became a data scientist. And then and they realized that it's kind of hard to do data science without data. So that's what data engineering came into being. And now it's all about AI. And, you know, and so who knows? It'll be a pretty interesting. With respect to data engineering, like how important do you think it is sort of understanding the fundamentals of computer science, like algorithms, data structures, you know, is understanding that a DAG is used for, you know, querying planning and optimization or, you know, maybe a B tree for some forms of indexing. Like, does that matter to a data engineer's day to day? I think it does. I wouldn't say that you as a data engineer, a good junior data engineer needs to know all that. I would say like what we covered in the book is probably what I would say you should, you know, from a beginner to intermediate level data engineer. But yeah, I mean, as you become more senior, I would expect that you're going to know a lot of the stuff. Like, how would you, how would you read an explain plan in a database, for example, right, for a query, if you didn't understand, you know, um, you know, various things like B trees and so forth, right, that an explain plan will give you. And so I think, and various indexing methods and so forth. So I think the prerequisites, yeah, definitely um, algorithmic complexity and, and uh, you know, O notation and that kind of stuff is, is um, super necessary, uh, you know, especially when you're, as you're starting to custom build, you know, I, I think, you know, early on when you're starting out, if you're just using like a data ingestion tool, like a Fivetran or an Arabyte or, um, you know, Estuary or, you know, a Portable or something like that and just moving data to a Snowflake, like, probably don't need to know a ton of stuff, right? You would want to know how to write performant queries and hopefully understand ingestion patterns. But you can get, I mean, a lot of the tooling is abstracted away. You know, a lot of that uh, stuff that's kind of goes back to the whole notion of our book versus say Martin Clevin's book, which is more about the internals of how all this stuff works, right? But I think at some point for you to graduate towards being a very competent professional, obviously you need to start knowing this stuff. And having a computer science background, I would say, gives you a huge advantage over this stuff because you already 
learn this stuff, but I mean, you'll have to learn it one way or the other, but there's great resources out there. You know, database internals is a terrific book. Um, that I think everyone should read. It's a bit dense, but you know, that's kind of what you got to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, you know, you mentioned, uh, this earlier as well, but essentially, you know, the, the tooling's gotten much better. Things are easier in many ways. Um, so, you know, where are sort of the hard problems in data engineering today? I think the hard, you know, thinking a lot about this, I actually don't think that there's much of a tooling gap at this point for, for solving classical data problems. And by that, I mean classical analytical problems where data warehouse or data lake house is needed, right? What I, what I do think is happening is that there's actually a skills gap and a knowledge gap and a competency gap uh, between the people using the tools um, and the potential that the tools provide. I actually think this is the biggest gap in our industry right now. The data industry is actually not really understanding the fundamental practices. Um, things like data modeling, for example, right? Things like how do databases work? Um, I think because a lot of the tooling abstracts away, um, you know, a lot of functionality and just, which is great. That's how, that's what technology should do. <laughs> but at the same time, it helps you to understand what's going on the, under the hood and understand Again, for data modeling, for example, correct ways of, of how to think about your data, you know, at a conceptual level, for example, and how it relates back to the business or the organization you're in. And then translating that data down to, you know, something that's performant, um, you know, from a um, storage and query, um, you know, the physical layer of, of data modeling, right? And knowing all the techniques. If you, you know, if I talk to data professionals these days, actually, a lot of them don't understand or haven't heard of the uh, classical uh, data modeling techniques. If you mention relational modeling to people, they kind of look at you with a blank stare. Uh, they may have heard of it once, but couldn't really explain it. And, you know, but I mean, and understanding why it's, why it's important to use relational modeling and when you'd want to use it, I think is, is you know, not just data people, I would say software engineers too. You know, I think a lot of practices are just um, kind of thrown by the wayside or forgotten about. And this is, but then, you know, consult consultancies like mine or companies like mine have to, you know, when we come into situations, we're you know, certainly glad that there's, lack of knowledge and best practices because you wouldn't have a business otherwise i mean you know at the end of the day consulting is just knowledge arbitrage it's literally all it is right but but at the same time you know i'm writing books on this kind of stuff and i feel like that's you know and i, I you know i'm kind of um i don't say moving away from consulting but definitely uh i think my, my biggest focus right now is just education i feel like that is single-handedly the biggest gap that we have as an industry like i said there's no shortage of technologies at this point i mean new technologies will always come about to solve new problems. That's the nature of technology. But um, I think there's just a huge gap between what we're capable of doing and um, where we need to go. Where do you think that skills gap is coming? Is, is it, are we moving away from perhaps teaching some of these fundamentals in, at the you know, university level? Or is it people are taking different paths to a career in data where they might be skipping over the fundamentals and be fo focused more on the tooling? It's kind of like, you know, if you go to a boot camp, 80% of graduates from boot camp are usually fr focused on front end, they're learning React, but then you you know, you might not be learning sort of the fundamentals of actual like computer science and how a programming language works. And you're kind of just focused purely on the uh, technology. I, I do agree with this observation 100%, right? So we're, if you look at how, um, you know, data, data boot camps, for example, right? It's like, okay, so the, what's, what's the first thing we're going to learn? Probably Python and SQL, right? Because that's widely used tools. I mean, the whole intent is to get somebody a job, right? So you can check, check the boxes on a resume, Say, okay, this person gets Python and SQL and so forth. But if I were to ask you, um, okay, so given, given this, um, this setup, you know, let's say a company, for example, right? And this is, a, this is what the company looks like. This is what they do. How would you think about their data needs? 
right? Like what, what, what are, what are we trying to do in the first place? So I think giving people the ability to see and observe a situation is, is, um, is lacking in the techniques to, to assess that. And then obviously, as you point out with computer science, uh, understanding big O notation, for example, right? Like, Oh, am I, am I going to write like four, um, like three, four loops nested together? Is that a good idea? You know, or did I just create like, um, you know, cubic complexity in, in my, uh, you know, what I just did there, you know, and it, this is, it, but if you, all, you know, are for loops, for example, and you don't understand the, the impact of nesting these things that, you know, like I see this all the time, right. Or the difference between state stateless and stateful programming. Right. So again, um, you know, if you're using a distributed system, you, you want to write stateless code, right. Uh, and you don't want to write things that are stateful for very obvious reasons, but this is, again, isn't really taught as far as I can tell. So, you know, I see a lot of things. And so I think there's a few reasons for this, right. Um, obviously it's, People come into it from different angles and are trying to, you know, I think as quickly as possible, get the skills that they need to, to check the boxes on, on a job description so they can get a job and they can't blame them. That was what you probably want to do if you want to get a job. Uh, um, and it just takes a lot of time to, to master the fundamentals, you know, and it's just not one of the things I think people are incentivized to do, especially at their jobs. It's like, you know, and, I, and I'm going to blame a couple of things. I'm going to blame maybe the cult of agile for, for people that are working at jobs because the cult of agile you know, Agile, the manifesto started out as, as being a basically um, a manifesto that describes how we would continuously deliver software, right? Um, what this also, in an iterative fashion, but what this also means is that people took that and started thinking that, okay, two-week sprints is the same as being Agile. But it's really hard to, to I think, um, to sit down and master the fundamentals um, and really think if you're only operating in two-week sprints, for example, right? And I think this is one of the dichotomies and data is that we're trying to apply a software engineering framework to, to data, which I would say is fundamentally different in a lot of ways, right? Um, with data, you're, you're trying to compile data, um, you know, in, in large case to, to get context of the entire enterprise. This is not the same thing as delivering features as you would in software engineering, but now we have to, you know, data, data is very much a thinking person sport, as I say in a lot of my talks. And this is a fundamentally different thinking exercise and, and, um, you know, plowing away at two-week sprints. So I think that's also part of it where you just don't have the time to sit back and really assess, you know, what, what are we trying to do from first principles and, like, what should I learn uh, from a best practices standpoint? And so, um, yeah, I, I'm sure I could blame a lot of other things, but I'll, I'll blame those for now. Well, I, I think when you sort of, you know, blindly potentially apply, like, a methodology, you might not realize there's also consequences to choosing that path. Like, it's just like, you know, if you think about, um, you know, certain KPIs, you know, we tend to optimize the metrics that we measure. So if you measure the wrong thing, what does that end up doing? It might actually steer you in the wrong direction. Like I know during my time at Google, you know, everybody's focused on performance reviews that happen twice a year. So if something is a project that takes longer than six months, you know, it's kind of, you know, people are more reluctant to do it because even if it potentially has more impact and it's the right thing to do, but what do I show on my next performance review? And that impacts the bonus I get to at the end of the year. It impacts my ability to get promoted and all this sort of stuff. So you become sort of hyper-focused on these short-term wins and that leads to short-sighted, I think, uh, choices when it comes to, uh, you know, building a product. That's really interesting, Sean. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, I think it was Charlie Munger. He's Warren Buffett's business partner. He said it best for you. If you show me the incentive, I'll show you the outcome. So, you know, what you described, it very much fits that. I mean, you know, you have a performance review is you're going to, that, that's what you're going to be, if that's what you're measured towards, that's what you're going to improve upon. 
simple as that, right? So it's, yeah, it definitely does come down to exactly what you described. Um, and so that's for good and for bad, right? So I want to talk a little bit about, you know, what's kind of going on in, in the world of data. Um, so you know, starting with like data warehouses, how has that area sort of changed over the past, you know, decade or so? And, and where do you see it going? I mean, I think the biggest, the biggest shift is really the movement to the cloud and the modern data stack. So if you go back 10 years ago, um, or even further than that, I would say, um, say 15 for argument's sake, right? I mean, your options at the time, if you're a company and you want data warehousing capability, you could obviously roll your own in a relational database and they'll get you some way of the way there. It's fine. A data warehouse is, is meant to be an architectural paradigm. It's not meant to be a, um, a specific technology, as you know, Bill, Bill Inman would point out. Um, but it, with respect to the data warehousing technologies, I think what, what's changed is, you know, the modern data stack, um, you know, I think really democratized, um, you know, the use of, of data warehousing, right? And by that, I mean, you know, November of 2012 is when I sort of put the, at least in my opinion, is when the modern data stack started. And that was with the release of uh, AWS Redshift, right? So before you'd have to get these expensive, you know, contracts for data warehouses, usually on-prem. You know, if you're getting Teradata, for example, you might be charged by the amount of cores that you're using, and that can be very expensive. Um, there's a lot of onerous details in that. And Redshift came out, and they're like, fine, it's 25 cents um, per hour for a core, right? Digital processing unit, I think, or data processing unit at the time, DPU. That was pretty cool, right? So for pretty cheap, you get a data warehouse, and it runs in the cloud, and that's pretty cool. And that ushered in a lot of new technologies, right? Uh, you know, uh, you know um, cloud-based data ingestion tools, ELT became a thing for, for better or for worse. Um, um, you know, Snowflake, I think they, they started working on that around 2012 as well. And so, um, you know, you kind of couple this with the rise of data science too. And you started seeing, I, I think, um, at the beginning of the, of the 2010s, the, the data science and data warehousing workloads are quite different. And I, and I think there was actually a lot of animosity between the data warehousing crowd, and the data science crowds where data science sort of this, this hot new thing and data warehousing was, you know, this is old stodgy, uh, kind of blue shirt and khakis type of thing. And, uh, you know, and then I, I remember data scientists were, were claiming, oh, yeah, like, you know, data warehousing is going to die. SQL is going to die. I, I've heard these pronouncements countless times, right? But that was like, that was for years. People were saying this kind of stuff, you know, like, oh, we're just going to be all be writing in notebooks at some point, right? And so, you know, I think Spark uh, blew the lid off of, of a lot of things, too, when that came out, right? Uh, um you know, because for the longest time you had to write MapReduce and Hadoop, and that's painful for everybody. Um, you know, but Spark, I think, opened the, it made it a lot simpler and a lot faster. And so, you know, that was around 2014, I think Spark open source came out. And then what was really interesting is, you know, Databricks, for example, they, they sort of, um, you know, they were a data science first company back in the day. And I remember using a lot of their stuff and thought it was pretty awesome. Then you started seeing a convergence though, right? I would say kind of the late 2010s is when you started seeing, um, you know, Lakehouse come onto the scene and um, I forgot to mention data lakes. That was a big thing. So as well, right. But that, so, I mean, the notion was, oh, we'll just collect all this data and maybe we'll use it later. Right. But I think what happened was, do you ever watch those like hoarder shows on uh, cable? <laughs> I, I've, I, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty awesome. I love watching these shows for some reason. I'm a pretty sick, sick person. Um, but that's, that, that's what a lot of people's, uh, a lot of companies' data uh, systems ended up looking like. 
yeah, we don't know what we're going to do with this, but we know we there's some value in there somewhere, so we're going to hold on to it. Right, yeah. It's like the uh, it's like having value in like some like smelly pizza box that's like five years old that you just want to keep around for some reason. And, you know, so if that, that happened, I think people will quickly rise at the data lake that maybe there are probably other ways to do this, right? Because discover like curating data sets and discovering data sets, I mean, it becomes almost impossible at some point just because it's like, how the hell do you find anything? You can't, right? And so then GDPR comes along in 2018. And well, now you have to be able to find your data. And if you want to delete it, for example, because you can get fined pretty heavily if you can't. So I think that's when people started taking uh, at least governance a bit more seriously. Because um, before that, it's like it was a free for all. You know this. I mean, you, you, it's, it's, uh, well, even now there's a ton of companies that are just sitting on like a mountain of data, unstructured data that's like, you know, encrypted in a bucket somewhere. And they're like, we can't touch it because it's got, you know, PII or PHI or, you know, something in it. And, uh, but someday we'll be able to do something with this. Someday. <laughs> so it's interesting. And then you, so I mean, that's what's changed, I think, is you just saw the con, uh, the, um, combination and sort of the convergence of, of data science and traditional data warehousing analytical workloads to the point now where these systems are very much converging. I mean, you, you haven't, you know, there's, there's data fabric in Azure, you know, there's Databricks, Snowflake, I mean, are basically on track to be the same product, in my opinion, uh, feature for feature, at least. Yeah. I mean, they're, they basically want to own all the data uh, at, at this point, you know? Yeah. Big queries are dope and like, um, you know, Redshift is, you know, I think catching up. So yeah, I mean, it, it's, so the, the lake house paradigm is sort of where everything is, is going towards. Right. And that's, that was a big evolution. Um, yeah. Do you think the data lake as, you know, historically we know it, it's just going to go away? I think so. I don't see much of a need for it. I mean, because you can get the best of both worlds of the lake house and you combine your, your structured or semi-structured, uh, you know, data sets, you know, along with your unstructured data. I mean, that's, with a management and a governance layer on top of that, I think that's a key distinction because otherwise you would literally just have a data lake as we called it in the past. And nothing wrong with data lakes. I just think that, you know, the world's kind of outgrown the that um, that, that chaos that it provides. I mean, you'd have to be a very disciplined individual to, to do a data lake, the, you know, but I mean, or, or disciplined organization. I mean, it certainly is done. A lot of companies have done it successfully, but that's, I don't think it's everyone's cup of tea. So this convergence is going on. Do you think that this, you know, we now also have the emergence of all these, you know, vector database companies. Do you see that also moving into essentially a single platform? Yeah, I think it, it inevitably it will. Yeah. I mean, you're starting to see this kind of workload already, right? So. Yeah. I mean, I, I think like um, MongoDB now uh, is supporting vectors, for example. Yeah. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And so. Yeah, I, I think that a lot, you're going to see a convergence of all this stuff, especially with the rise of unstructured data sets, because uh, it's like, I think for the longest time, there, there are definitely people, you know, definitely companies with um, a ton of great use case for, for uh, unstructured data, but it was sort of this tale of two worlds, right? You had the structured data people over here and the unstructured over here, and these worlds didn't really, um, you know, talk. And But now, you know, with the rise of, um, you know, uh, generative AI everywhere, right? I mean, it, it these worlds will collide. They have to, but it's it's going to pose some very interesting dilemmas. Um, but I mean, the, the the you know, because you can use generative AI with you know text, images, all the above in a multimodal setting, then it's like why the hell not? So so you're absolutely right. Vector databases will, I think, become first class citizens in pretty much every infrastructure. I don't because I mean you're going to need that that um, similarity search capability, right? It's just yeah. I mean, it's a way to essentially take action on the unstructured data. Do you think? The 
now that we have you know more technologies that allow us to actually leverage you know, structured data, that's changing in any way the type of work that data engineers are, are doing and are responsible for? It's a good question. And it's something that I, I was thinking about last week quite heavily. I did a podcast episode on this and it's, I think it was titled Things I Didn't Expect to See or something like that. I don't know. I never remember what I record. Um, but it was, uh, so was that, is that Matillion's demo last week or is that their, um, their event hosting it uh, with, uh, with Mark Bacchanetti and we're doing, um, we had a bunch of AI announcements, right? It's like every company's announcing some sort of AI feature. But what I thought was really interesting with this is, okay, so they're, they're letting you do prompts now to create data pipelines, right? I thought that was, that was interesting. Um, I'm still on the fence of, of whether that's is good or not because if you're dealing with a stochastic system where, you know, if I give you a prompt, I don't know what the output's actually going to be 100% of the time. Yeah, reproducibility is a, is a, is a problem. Yeah, it's like, so am I going to do like prompt reviews with my, with my team now? Uh, you know, what, what would that look like if I were in a CICD pipeline, for example, right? So I think that's, that's an interesting one, but hey, it's happening. Yeah, I mean, ideally, like, when I think about something like CICD or, uh, you know, I don't know, orchestration or something like that, like, d- uh, I don't know, reliability and being a reproducibility are really important. Um, and those are two areas where it is uh, not necessarily the uh, uh, the core value of, you know, Gen AI right now. No, it's exactly the opposite. It's just like, so, you know, how are you going to unit test these things, for example, right? I have a, I have a prompt. I'm, I don't think anybody knows the answer. Creating a pipeline, right? It's exactly the whole. It's like so. So, is this a good idea to do? I don't know, but we're doing it anyway. Um, so, so then you know the other thing they demoed, which I thought was pretty cool, was the ability to use large language models, you know, to comb through um, you know a bunch of uh, text data, right, in your in your data pipeline. I think that was pretty cool um, in the way that it's just like super easy to do, right? Because this is traditionally a tool that was um, you know more for uh, structured data sets and just querying. Databases, but now I can come up with sentiment analysis or some sort of analysis on my, um, say, customer review text data, and so I think these worlds will, will collide, and you know, I can do the same thing with images and stuff. So I don't, you know, I think that it'll it's going to unlock a lot of capabilities that so far probably data engineers weren't even thinking of, right? Because it's like the workflow is typically okay, so I'll just get data, put it somewhere, you know, serve it for downstream use cases. But those downstream use cases are well, they're growing, right? Um, and so. Like that's pretty exciting, and it will, it'll change the, uh, the workflow of data engineers for sure. Vector databases again—that's another big one, right? So you know, I think for data engineers now, you're going to be intersecting the worlds of ML engineering and ML ops in, in ways that probably, you, at least this time last year, probably weren't even thinking about. Yeah, this time last year, most people didn't know what a vector was. So <laughs> no, mm-hmm. I mean the, the 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 hype back in the you know through 2021 to now was the feature stores, right? I, you don't hear much about those right now. Yeah, because you don't need features, and oh, well, Gen AI will find the features for you. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> sure. <laughs> so you know, you were talking a little bit uh, about sort of the the MapReduce Hadoop era, and I, I think you know it's it's kind of hard for people, you know, maybe entering the world of uh, you know data systems now to really like understand the impact that those systems had on large scale data problems, you know, back in the day, but. A lot of those modeling approaches, even things like, you know, I don't know, using one large table in order to overcome, you know, limitations of the technology we had at disposal at a given time, like eventually those things got simpler and like the underlying framework was taken care of um, in terms of the complexity. So I guess like 
looking at today, like what sort of hacks or workarounds are we doing today that you think will go away and eventually just be something that kind of magically happens behind the scenes for us because we have a, a proper abstraction layer? Mm, good question. I've been thinking about this a lot from the context of generative AI, actually, um, and what it can do for data modeling. Um, I think the hacks we have right now, and I talk about data modeling a lot because that's what I'm writing a book on. That's pretty much the only thing on my mind at this point. Um, but it has huge impacts, right? Hacky data models mean that you can spend more time than you need to on getting really bad answers, for one. So double whammy, right? What do I mean by this? Well, if you have an inefficiently created data set, say a giant wide table, right? Um, you know, the impacts can be quite severe. For example, you might have lots of duplicates. You might have lots of redundancies. You might have, you probably don't even know what the hell is in there, right? Query patterns are chained together, right? So if you're using, um, you know, certain transformation tools, and you don't understand modeling practices well, you're, you're going to basically create probably just a bunch of tables or one big table or some weird thing in between or just a bunch of queries. And I think those are, those are the hacks right now. It's like we're, we're super reactive trying to answer various questions. And what that means is you have just an enormous amount of sprawl, right? So if you thought the data lake was bad, you know, uh, I, I would challenge people to think that, or to, to at least observe the, the workings of their own uh, data practices, for example, and, and ask, okay, so how many, how many queries do I have that are just sitting out there right now? How consistent are they in, in arriving to some sort of base level of truth in the questions that I'm being asked, right? Can I consistently answer questions from the data sets I have often probably not right you have very much divergence of, of um you know truth so I think a couple of things I've been thinking of is okay so generative AI could certainly help this in some ways I think especially when coupled with knowledge graphs um I think you're going to see the rise of graphs to provide more context in, in terms of data that people have and, and generative AI I think will just be a um um I think obviously the, the you know being able to search through data sets is is great and they'll get better. Um, but I think also there's, there's a capability of it actually being able to go back and reformat uh, data sets into a better form, right? I've been experimenting with this myself and I, I think there's actually quite a bit of promise in this. Um, but yeah, it's still super early days. We'll see. But those are the hacks I see right now. It's just, I think again, back to the nature of the type of work that people do, you're, you're, you're reacting to questions and, and needs of the business and, and constantly firefighting. And this isn't uh but it's ironic because we're supposed to be, um, you know, data professionals and knowledge workers and stuff, but we're, we're constantly just always in firefighting mode. Do you see that's because there's, um, you know, due to like a lack of resourcing traditionally in the space. So you, you don't have time to sort of take a step back and, and do the proper planning. You're more just like you're taking orders at a restaurant essentially and reacting to those in the moment. Oh yeah. I think it's a very good analogy, Sean. Um, yeah, absolutely correct. Yeah, you're understaffed, under resourced, especially now. You know, data teams have been kind of cut to the bone, especially, you know, like along with other teams. And it's like, you're going to do what you can to get by in the day, and that's about it. Or you do what you can to get by in the sprint. Uh, yeah, I feel like all, like, sort of uh, non, uh, like, directly revenue-generating teams uh, have been suffered over the last year in terms of where the cuts are making. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the reality of, of business, right? That's going to happen. And that's just, you know, so if you're, if you're um, on those teams that are still around, then yeah, you're going to be expected to do a lot more with a lot less. And that's just how it is. And so, yeah, you're not going to have time. You're, you're just going to do what you can to get your job done, right? Because again, it's about hitting it, whatever KPI you're, you're supposed to hit, whether that's real or imagined, right? And so most companies don't have KPIs. That's a, 
And that's the crazy thing. Most, you know, most teams I've seen don't even have a sense of a KPI. So you're going to, you're basically just trying to, um, you know, strive towards whatever you think is the right thing to do or whatever you think your boss thinks is the right thing to do. <laughs> so, cause it's all about self-preservation. So of course you're going to, you know, and restaurants are a good example. I mean, I've worked in restaurants before. Maybe you have as well. It's, it's a very stressful environment, right? It's like, I can't, I can't think of a, of a uh, more of a pressure cooker than a place like that, but that's, that's a lot of, that's a lot of teams these days too. So you're absolutely right. Yeah. One of the things you mentioned there was, uh, you know, this challenge around data duplication. You know, we were talking about the lake and, and the you know, challenges with the data lake is, uh, you know, like it, it just becomes a management nightmare because you have all this data just kind of sitting there. You have to be very disciplined about actually, you know, cataloging it to be able to, to do anything with it. But I think even in the structured world, the problem, one of the major problems that companies have is just duplication of data, especially when we're talking about PII and that leads to this huge sprawl problem. And you create the same problems where you don't know, you know, what you're storing, where it's storing. And in the world of GDPR, as well as other, you know, 100 plus regulations that exist in the world, it becomes very, very difficult to um, be compliant as well as secure the data. So I, I guess, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Like, do you see this is a, a big sort of challenge for, for companies that you work with as well? Huge problem, right? And especially with the, the popularity of, of uh, you know, SaaS applications, right? Because now... You have the ability to have no control of your data model, um, and then you have the you have every ability to to duplicate data to your heart's content in all kinds of systems that don't talk to each other typically, right? So this, yeah, I mean the temptations there, and in a lot of cases, data duplication occurs, or you know, or triplication, or quadruplication, whatever. How, how many you know replications you want to talk about? Um, I mean, you can do this to your heart's content in all these different systems. No way of reconciling it. So, you know, you might have different, uh, different versions of a customer or different versions of products. Cool. Awesome. <laughs> so it's, it's, that's, that's what we're in right now though. So there's this quote from your book where you said, it's easy to get caught up in chasing bleeding egg technology while losing sight of the core purpose of engineering, data engineering, despite designing robust and reliable systems to carry data through the full life cycle and serve it according to the needs of the end users. So there's this ever-changing landscape of tools, some of the things that we touched on in this that data engineers can use and learn. Do you think that we get too fixated in love with tools and these beautifully complex modern data stacks when perhaps something simple could just do the job? Oh yeah, all the time. It's Well, I mean, you got to consider it from the angle of, a, of an engineer too. I mean, you get paid to engineer stuff and you're always trying to find the the cool new thing, right? Because that's you just want to tinker with stuff, right? And it, it's, it's I think there's an element of resume driven development too in this, where you know constantly looking at what's the hot new technology, what's going to help me get my next job, right? I'm not going to be a COBOL programmer. It's not that cool. Even though I could probably make a ton of money doing that. Um, you know what I mean? But it's like that's that's just always a temptation. It's just it's uh, yeah. It's, it's it's I think it's just human nature though. The grass is always greener on the other side. So you know it's a uh, and there's always there's always a new open source technology you should try out. There's always a new vendor, with a cool product that you should that they tell you you should go try out. And so uh, there's a lot of noise, right? But you know you gotta spend your time also focusing on what the business needs, and um, you know that's important. <laughs> but and the fundamentals are hard to do too, right? I mean, because again, it's I, I always tell people you should if you master the fundamentals, it makes it a lot easier to assess all these new technologies. Cause it's like, rarely is there anything that's like completely novel and new out there. I would say very, very rarely does that happen. Now, often what happens is that there are just variations and permutations and, 
you know, some sort of combinatorial stuff on existing ideas and technologies. And that's how things morph. I very rarely do you see something that comes out of left field that's completely new, right? Doesn't, doesn't really happen in our field. Yeah. So do, do you think that a lot of this, I, I don't know, like getting better at sort of making these decisions in terms of technology choices or knowing when, hey, like, I don't need to, like, apply this whole stack when I could do this pretty simply with like, I don't know, a spreadsheet or something like that comes from, you know, just, exp you know, mature, sort of maturity in the space and, and uh, experience. Yeah, I think it, it, you got to spend your cycles uh, sort of getting, you know, your butt kicked around a bit, you know, and I think that it, it, get, it brings you back to reality. You know, like I, I do a lot of stuff in spreadsheets. Why? Because it's really easy to do and it, it costs me nothing. Right. And they're super efficient. Um, they're unreasonably effective for a lot of stuff. Um, you know, but you know, I think what you realize is, you know, the, really it comes down to you as the individual and how effective you are at solving problems. The tools are just there to, to be tools, right? But I think when you start out, right, you want to compensate with your lack of knowledge and lack of skills with tools. That, that's a temptation because it's like, well, it, I know how to use these tools. I probably don't know what I'm doing, right? And that, that's, that's the kind of the, the fresher mentality that I've seen at least, uh, but that changes. I think ultimately you end up, I mean, my favorite tool is really just a pad and paper these days and drawing out what I think the solution should be. Um, and, and going on long walks and thinking about the problem. That's my secret weapon. I don't need technologies to do that up front. I certainly need it to help implement things, but then you, you, you know what you need to do, right? But that, you're not, you're, if you're coming out of college, you're not going to have that ability. Why would you? <laughs> you don't have the experience. You wouldn't know how to solve it from, you know, but that, that just comes with time and comes with getting um, a lot of bruises. Yeah. You got to over-engineer a few systems uh, before you realize uh, maybe uh, you spend a little bit more time uh, planning before executing. Oh, yeah. And, and I think the, the big question you need to ask is why? Why why are we doing this at all? Like, what what is the objective? Like, you know, I think if you can, if you can um, treat things as a journalist and, and approach it from that perspective, you... Just ask really good questions. You'll have better context. Sometimes the answer is you don't need to design this. You don't need to build this at all, actually. So um, that, that is an answer as well. Not everything has to be built. Right. Yeah. I mean, you could uh, you could potentially even you know pay for service. Like it's, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like I was reading this. I was reading an article on Hacker News um, a few weeks ago. Uh, somebody had um, I think it was at Uber. They they wrote their own spreadsheet. Like they created a spreadsheet because like the Excel or whatever didn't do what they needed to do. And so they uh, over-engineered the spreadsheet. And then I think um, something happened and it was never really used at all. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. I feel like, so like, uh, you know, Google had a, built up a culture of sort of engineering everything. And I think in the early days it made sense because one of their core assets was engineering and they were doing things at scale well beyond essentially like a lot of services existed. But now that's not really the case but there's still sort of this historic culture around like, hey, we, we're not going to use Salesforce. We're going to you know, write our own CRM or we're not going to use HubSpot. We'll use our own marketing automation. But then you have these kind of like internal tools that are subpar to really what the industry standards are uh, in some fashions because, you know, internal tools are never going to get the same resourcing that, uh, you know, uh, Google searches or, you know, ads. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? I think last time I checked as a Google Cloud partner, I, they use Salesforce for the, the Google Cloud <laughs> CRM now, right? So it's like, you know, the, you can't escape uh, the inevitability that there are better tools out there sometimes and maybe you don't have the best tool. 
But you're absolutely right. That's a temptation. I mean, I, I know people who have written their own databases when like MySQL or Postgres would have done just great. They're like, oh, I have to build this. I'm like, I guess if that's what your boss will let you do, I don't know why you would do this, but. Yeah. I mean, even as a lot of database companies are, um, you know, start with Postgres and then use the extensions to, you know, do whatever they need. To, that's why there's so many like Postgres, uh, like you know, sort of core, core Postgres. I mean, it's kind of like a, you know, an operating system, like let's start with the Unix kernel and then go from there. We don't need to reinvent that piece. Oh, exactly. And Postgres is awesome. Like, you know, Linux is awesome. I mean, use these, as we say in the book, you know, and we write, I think in chapter four about choosing technologies, build versus buy. It's like, you know, you should build when it's a competitive advantage to you. And there's, there's, it's uniquely yours. Like what you mentioned with Google, like they were operating at a scale, solving problems in a way that nobody on earth is doing. Of course, you're going to have to build this in your own. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think it's for lack of trying, um, you know, off the shelf stuff and, and breaking it. Right. I mean, they, they did that. And, and so, you know, this is what they had to do. Like, you know, I talked to Jordan Tagani about, um, you know, the work they do with BigQuery, right? Like he was, he was a founding engineer for that. And it's like, yeah, you're building that because it's a system that this you need and doesn't exist right now. You have to run analytics on tons of data. It's like that can't really do that. You're going to have to build it, right? And so that's, you know, just, but you, you got up. And I think you got to understand like where you are as a company and as a, as a team, right? Like most companies aren't Google and you don't need to do this. And so, you know, I think there's a temptation for engineers, software or data or whatever to read like Google's blog, Uber's blog, Netflix's blog and say, okay, I'm going to go do that at my company. Right. And it's like, maybe, maybe, maybe it'll work. But, you know, do you, are you, do you have the same problem in that same way? You know, so. Yeah. Also, do you have a hundred engineers to throw at a problem that's like, you know, non-core to whatever it is your, your, you know, business model is. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, what do you think are the big unsolved problems in data engineering? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think it's, it's really about integrating data into you know, like I said, more application workflows and that whole feedback loop, I think is like one of the big sort of unsolved problems. I would say again, like the class, like the capability of, of solving like the classical data problems. I'm talking about analytics, for example. I think that we have the technology to, to, to do that right now. We've had it for a long time. Um, so I think it's a combination of, again, of, of skills and practices. I think that that's one of the big problems for data engineering is just, um, you know, I think leveling up on the concepts, I think to be most effective at your job. Um, but we already touched on that. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. And then, but the big unsolved problem I would say is, yeah, just that feedback loop um, between just in the data life cycle and, and bringing it full circle like that. And I think we're going to um, continue solving. Um, I'll, I'll throw out a trigger word for, for the audience and people will have an aversion to this or like it, but data mesh, I think is a, has a capability of helping solve this problem. Um, but it, um, it, you know, we're not there yet. Have you seen anybody actually implement some version of data mesh? I've seen people, I've talked to people who have said that they've implemented some version of it, right? And so, but if you, if you were to talk to people like Jim McDagani, who's, who's a really good friend of mine, I mean, I think that she maybe have a, has a different opinion of that, right? So I think it's, it's, it's sort of in the eye of the beholder. But I think the notion of, the, of data sharing in a decentralized way, like that, I think has been done to some degree, but I think according to her, um, perspective, maybe there's just some work to do on it, but you know, we'll, we'll get there. I think, I hope so. <laughs> so, but, but what it means though, and that the, 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 one of the conclusions that he draws on, which I don't think it's discussed a lot is that that actually changes the shape of the roles people have. Right. So if you're a data product developer, as she calls it, 
you basically you're, you're bringing together software engineering and data practices all into one, right? So the notion of a data engineer, software engineer, ML engineer, this all kind of goes away, and it's just now you're delivering data products. And I think that's that is a kind of the fundamental shift. Which, if you were to, to take you know, what she proposes to a logical conclusion, is is exactly what would happen. So whether we get there or not, I don't know. But that's a, a debate for an, for another podcast. So. Yeah, yeah, that's a whole uh, topic itself. So as we start to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share? And, you know, how can people sort of reach out to you, get in contact with you? Yeah, LinkedIn's good. Just send me a message. And I, um, I usually respond. Uh, if you send me a sales pitch, I will not respond. <laughs> so <laughs> you'll actually be moved to the other box uh, uh, where that's purgatory for messages. Um, yeah, LinkedIn's good. Uh, yeah, I'm you know taking a break from speaking. I think that we're recording this in kind of late November. Um, you know, but I, uh, taking a break from international travel for several months and working on a, got to finish my book. So that's coming out, um, first half of next year. Then got a course I'm working on with deep learning AI on uh, data engineering. So that's going to be pretty dope. Really looking forward to that. So that specialization is, um, um, so you can keep an eye out for that too. Um, can't commit to a date on when that'll be out, but will you, uh, you know, I'm heads down on those two projects right now, as well as starting a new company. Um, so Certainly, a content and publishing company that will be announced um, early next year. And, uh, yeah, got a lot going on. Yeah, it sounds like a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And CrossFit, CrossFit, we forgot to talk about that. So, going to get back into shape doing that stuff. I think we, uh, we actually have a mutual friend. Um, so, we were talking about on the, on the show. So, uh, yeah, she's going to be doing some programming for me. That's uh, Colleen Foch. If she's listening, a uh, shout out. So, yeah, Colleen's an uh, amazing athlete, uh, um, far superior. I, I can't comment on, I don't know what your athletic ability is, Joe, but I'm going to just warrant to guess that uh, Colleen's is uh, above yours and certainly above mine. Oh, it is. It, it is, yeah. Even though she's, quote, retired uh, from CrossFit, she still will, like, completely uh, mutilate anybody <laughs> she competes with. So, yeah, just, uh, but it's cool, I think, hanging out with people like that because I, I like to unplug from uh, the data uh, stuff as well. It's, it's, it's fun, but it's nice to, you know, hang out and, do other stuff but she's a data person too so it's kind of funny so uh anyway but yeah yeah do you crossfit much uh yeah uh five times a week jesus okay it's a lot yeah that's how i uh reset my brain um you know a little bit of tired it's <laughs> a way if you do something physically hard there's no way i can be you know sort of thinking too deeply about uh you know work and, and other things which i spend most of my time kind of thinking about so Oh, man. Yeah. Just go do Fran every day or something. Yeah, exactly. There you go. <laughs> it's gross. Well, thanks, uh, Joe, for so much for, for coming. Um, you know, for those listening, I highly recommend The Fundamentals of Data Engineering, a fantastic book. And hopefully, you know, once you some of these other projects land, um, you know, if you want to come back and, and chat about them, I'm happy, happy to have you back down there. Yeah, I'd love to. Love to. Or we can do it in person. We can do a CrossFit workout and do a podcast. Yeah, there we go. All our brass and sweaty. Probably before because we'll be very winded after. Yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you so much. Uh, cheers. Yeah, thanks, dude. All right, take care.